Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We're continuing our study through the book here. We're in chapter 5. And we're going to look at four verses toward the end of the chapter, verses 16 through 19 today. Just a few verses, but more than just a few truths. My heart has been so strengthened. My faith has been strengthened as I've had the joy of just sitting and opening the Word each day recently and asking God, Lord, do what only You can do to speak truth into my life and to make it real and to our entire church family. So I'm very much looking forward to our time together. Let's, let's begin by reading through these verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, starting in verse 16. Paul says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now you can see why I'm so excited this morning. What a privilege we have of reading these words of God. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we love Your Word. And we purpose, Lord, to love it more and more. We ask that You would be the one who opens the eyes of our heart. Lord, pour spiritual truth into us and grant us the grace to heed the wisdom of God, to love your law, to love your word, to love your commandments, to meditate on them as the psalmist says. Oh, that we would echo his words when he said, oh, how I love your law. Lord, your ways are, are good. Your unchanging truth is wonderful. And so we look forward to it now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of our study today, as you saw, is I Don't Recognize You. And you can see where we get that in the text. Paul's big theme through these verses is that we just don't look at life the same way anymore. In a big way, what Christ has done changes everything. His life and His death, and His resurrection, and His reigning on high have massive impact on everything. It's so much so, Paul says, we don't even see humanity the same anymore. So let's work our way through these wonderful verses. Starting in verse 16, again it says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Now these words that Paul is giving right at the start here echo back to chapter 4 and verse 18. And the incredible reality for believers that the things we cannot see are the things we're supposed to see. The verse says, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. So stop for a moment right now, and again, just try to let your mind bend around that thought. That is spiritual language right there. If someone were to say to us, look at what you can't see, that would catch us off guard. We'd have to really think about what in the world is this person talking about. Again, it's spiritual language. But all through chapter 5, Paul has been teaching about our eternal bodies. He's been teaching about our longing for heaven, our, our current courage in spite of our sufferings and the realities of life. He's talked about the judgment seat of Christ. He's talked about our mission to persuade others and to defend the church. He's talked about the controlling love of Christ, all these things that we cannot see. And here in our text today, he says, therefore... Since all of that is true, we don't even see you the same way anymore. You look very different. He says you're actually unrecognizable. 
Verse 16, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. The Greek word for recognize is defined in Bible dictionaries as to know and to perceive. There's a sense here in which Paul is referring to the chief identifying point of people. He's talking about their primary identifying quality and the deeper connection with them. It's the way we not only view but perceive people. There's a difference there. It's how we interpret our view of them. And Paul says, we no longer know you by your face, by the color of your hair, by your physical body, the sound of your voice, your ethnic background, etc. He says, that's not what we see anymore. In a distinct spiritual sense, Paul is saying, that is no longer who you are. Therefore, we don't look at you that way. And Paul emphasizes this by saying, we don't even know Christ according to the flesh anymore. Can you imagine such a thought? From the babe in the manger to the man on the cross, that's no longer how we identify Him. What we saw is no longer what we look at. Of course, Paul sees Christ spiritually and eternally. It's the theme all throughout these chapters. Jesus Christ is the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. He is eternal in the heavens. And so much more could be said to identify Him properly now. But as a side note, when we put this in historical context, this speaks very pointedly to a reality in Paul's time that does not exist in ours. Think about this. There were people in Paul's day, perhaps even in the Corinthian church, who had seen Jesus with their own eyes. People who had given him a hug. They had eaten meals with him. They had heard his human voice with their own ears. I don't know if you thought about this, but it's very possible that Paul had seen Christ as well. Of course, he viewed him as an enemy. He saw him as, from a distance. And we don't have a record that Paul saw him, but nowhere does it say that Paul never saw him. Matter of fact, what does Paul say in the verse? We no longer look at Christ the way we used to. It's very possible that Paul had seen Christ. Paul, remember, was one of the religious elite. It's very likely he had studied Christ. So lest Paul or anyone else put too much stock into these truly unique physical experiences, Paul says we know him in this way no longer. That is a significant theological statement with many real-life ramifications, especially for the believers in this time. For one, we can't help but see that the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is protecting the church from worshiping religious relics. A misguided faith and a temporal sentiment of no eternal value. There were people in this time of history who saw Jesus let your, let your imagination go. There may have been some who had his hand-me-down coat. What happened to the toys of his childhood? Perhaps some had his tools that he used in woodwork. One can only imagine, right? What do you think Jesus' hammer would go for in an auction? I mean, even in that day. What do you think a painting or a sculpture of Christ would be worth today if it was crafted by someone in the first century who personally saw Christ? Well, according to the text here, not much. That, that shroud of Turin, the cloth that has the faint image of a man's face on it, that some people claim to be the burial cloth of Christ with his face imprinted on it, even if it was real, by all biblical standards, it is completely worthless. I pulled this statement off Wikipedia about the shroud. It says, the Catholic Church has neither formally endorsed nor rejected the shroud. But in 1958, Pope Pius XII approved of the image in association with the devotion to the holy face of Jesus. 
You're chewing on that, right? How does a statement like that line up with 2 Corinthians 5.16? We can just hear Paul saying, that's not a holy face. We don't recognize that face. We have written it off. We see Christ differently now. Because in the spiritual eternal sense, which is the truest sense, that is not who Christ is. The value of Christ is not in the shape of His eyes or the color of His hair or the style of His beard or the soothing sound of His earthly voice. Paul says we no longer recognize our Savior according to those physical attributes. And the same goes for all of you. Paul says we see everyone differently now. Our vision has radically changed. And the lesson here is that there is something superior to the physical body and the physical realities. There's something that we cannot see that overrides what we can see. And why is this important? What is the purpose for Paul driving home this reality again, this spiritual eternal reality? Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. I can hear you smiling. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I love that word, behold. Open your eyes wide and cast your vision on what is new and eternally better. Again, this changes everything. Verse 17 is one of the believer's most awesome realities. If a person is in Christ, we'll talk about that more in a minute and what all that that means, but if they are in Christ, if they are truly a Christian, a disciple, and a follower of Christ, they become new. They are a new creation, a new creature. And we have to appreciate the word is in the verse here. As we study Scripture, you learn to love the words, the word choices. They're inspired by God. They all have rich meaning. He is a new creature. Not will be. Not someday. Not hopefully will be. He is a new creature. Right now, this is reality. This isn't just a new way of thinking. It's not just a new moral standard. It's not just a, a new religion or even a new life purpose. This is a new person. This is one of the grand miracles of salvation. It's what Jesus spoke of in John chapter 3, right? John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, you, you read through Corinthians, and all of a sudden it puts another slant on, he cannot see the kingdom of God, both now or forever. Guzik points out in his commentary, this is the great principle of regeneration. There's a wonderful truth here. Followers of, followers of Christ don't get repaired, they get regenerated. It's not a quick fix. It's not even a great fix. It's a brand new replacement. We'll see some of the substance of that replacement when we get to verse 21 next week, the end of the chapter. But for now, we get the strong sense that Paul is piggybacking on the concept of the new heavenly body that he addressed just a few verses prior. But we don't have to wait until heaven for there to be miraculous change. The real we, the one we can't see, is already new, is already changed. The verse says, old things passed away, behold, new things have come. We can think of this old and new in terms of the pre-Christ and the post-Christ eras. First we have Adam and his sin that cursed all of humanity with a broken relationship with God, their maker. And now we have Christ and his righteousness that broke the curse of sin and gave all humanity, you have to appreciate the word in the verse, anyone, the opportunity to receive the free gift of God. We know what that gift is. It is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23. This is a life-changing newness for anyone who repents of sin 
and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ who calls upon His name, who puts their faith and trust in Him alone. So let's explore this, some of this newness in verses 18 and 19. There are times when, when I'm sitting in the study and opening the Word and all of a sudden the fountain turns on. It's like the volcano begins to erupt. This is verses 18 and 19. The text says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. I can just hear pastors in the rooms, retired pastors, seminary teachers think, chuckling, thinking, Chris, you're not seriously going to preach on all that right now, are you? There is enough to write countless volumes on in this text. But Paul gave it to us this quickly, so I'm going to give it to you this quickly. We're going to try to, to absorb just the wholeness of what Paul is after here. If you're taking notes, here's a good place to put pen to paper. There are no less than eight attributes of this new creature and these new things, this new life that are listed in the two verses we just read. So let's look at them. Number one, there is a new source. The verse says, from God. Now we have to be very careful with our definition of new, especially on this point. In one sense, God is not the new source of salvation. He always has been and always will be the only source. He is new in the sense that everything pertaining to salvation is now new through Christ. You might look at it this way. The old is again the new. The point of the text being there is nothing man-made here. When we see the words from God, recognize the weight of those. There is nothing man-initiated. There is nothing man-designed. This isn't another religious philosophy from the mind of the religious elite or the spiritually minded, all these new things that have come are from God. This is a new reality. And I love how Guzik says again in his commentary, Paul soars high here, referring to these two verses, referring to the spectacular nature of the will of God at work in this text. Notice how God is the chief focus all throughout the phrases in verse 18 and 19. He is the undisputed hero in these verses. He is the uncaused cause as biblical science would identify him. He is the new and the only source of salvation. Secondly, we see a new relationship. We get this from the words, reconciled us to himself. One of the great spiritual truths that we find in the Bible is that humanity is not in right relationship with God. We are at odds with Him. We are actually enemies of the creator of the universe. These are spiritual truths that the Bible teaches us. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. The fact that He reconciled us to Himself proves that we were unreconciled in the first place. That is a required premise for the latter to even take place, right? The relationship was broken and unequal. And the Greek word for reconcile refers to make change. In this case, God changed us. He changed the relationship and He made it right. He changed this relationship to Himself. So many spiritual truths are found in these four words. Reconciled us to himself. One is that we didn't reconcile ourselves. Another is that we didn't reconcile God to us. God doesn't need to be what? Changed. We do. We know that God is holy and righteous altogether. He's immutable, meaning he's unchangeable. We, on the other hand, are sinners and desperately in need of change. I appreciated how Graham brought this truth to us in the Sunday school this morning. We are the ones in need of change. If you, have, if you don't believe that, you haven't watched the news lately. Humanity needs help in a quantity we cannot even begin to measure. 
This verse teaches us that it was God who reconciled us to Himself. This wasn't just world peace. This was divine peace with mankind. It's one thing for human beings to even try to achieve a perfect relationship with one another. But to actually restore perfect relationship between the creation and the Creator, between man and God, is of infinitely greater value and wonder. God Almighty reconciled sinful believers to Himself. We can hardly even begin to grasp the newness and the spectacular nature of this marvelous relationship to God. This direct access to the throne of grace and the King of kings who sits upon it. Observation number three, we find a new means. The verse says, through Christ. This magnificent reconciliation was performed through Christ, the Son of God. Barnes in his commentary highlights that Jesus is our mediator. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6 speak beautifully of the role that Christ played. He says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. If you've studied the book of Hebrews, you know that the entire book of Hebrews turns the spotlight on full power and shines it on the new high priest, Jesus Christ, the new sacrifice, the spotless Lamb of God, the new method, faith in Christ, which is manifested in repentance and belief in Christ as Lord and Savior. On the contrary, this reconciliation did not come through our good works, which when you stop and think about it, are not good at all in the eyes of a holy God. This reconciliation didn't come through any human religious leader such as pope or pastor or priest. It certainly didn't come through a process of self-discovery. The reconciliation of our relationship with God came only through Christ and His personal life and death and resurrection and reign on high. Jesus 14.6, we know these verses well. It's amazing how they connect so strongly to the rest of Scripture. Jesus said to him, I am the way. That's the means. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's verses like this that teach us that there is only one door into the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus, the Holy Son of God, the only Son of God, rightly and authoritatively claimed to be that door. When he said, no one comes to the Father but through me, one must think very carefully before choosing to call Jesus Christ a liar by insisting that all paths lead to God. I don't know who made that phrase up or what ancient philosophy first prompted that thought, but it certainly wasn't God the Father or God the Son. Surely, that is a thought that is straight from the great deceiver himself, Satan. Through Christ are two of the most spiritually accurate, life-giving, freedom-inspiring words you and I will ever hear this side of heaven. Through Christ. As the hymn writer said, hallelujah, what a savior. Let's look at observation number four. The text teaches us about a, a new mission. The verse says, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is one of the most mind-blowing thoughts to humanity, that God in His sovereignty has chosen to involve us in the ministry of reconciliation. He gives it to us. Think about that. He entrusts the stewardship of eternal life to us, the message, the ministry. This is something so valuable. It is so eternally important and God puts it in our hands. We've been given the mission. And here's another defining truth we find in this phrase. We are all called to ministry. Would you say that with me? 
We are all called to ministry. This is one of the greatest misunderstandings in all of Christianity, that only some are called to ministry. This new mercy mission belongs to every single one of us. There's a job to be done. There is labor to be diligently performed. There is a work to be completed by all of us. And this mission is straight from God. The pastor doesn't call people to ministry. He just reminds them of the ministry they've already been given. Seminaries don't delegate the ministry. They don't appropriate the ministry. They just support and equip people in it. The call to discipleship ministry doesn't originate in the church. Think about it. It was birthed in the heart and mind of God. This speaks to its importance, to its value, to its trustworthiness, and to think that He gave it to us. That should cause us to think twice before neglecting our calling, before setting down or setting aside, or as the parable says, burying the talent we've been given. If any of us fails to actively be doing the ministry of reconciliation, it's not the church we fail, it's God. It's not the church we give account to, it's God. As we studied in the past week or two, we won't stand before the judgment seat of the church. Christ will judge all things. Here's another truth we deduce from the verse. This source reality, this from God reality, should not just strike the fear of the Lord in us, it should strike the joy of the Lord. This resonates back to that incredible verse 5 in this chapter. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. This is a, a wonderful and a privileged and a guaranteed mission that we have been given. It's a guaranteed ministry that we have been entrusted with. Let's look at number five. We see a new incarnation. We find this in the phrase, God was in Christ. That statement also is so packed with theological value. And that translates into human value. There is a new incarnation. God became man. He didn't lose his deity. His deity just took on human form, human flesh. And although, I'll think about this, although Christ served as our mediator, having been both God and man himself, we're reminded here that Christ was not in the middle trying to sue, between God and man, trying to get God and humanity to compromise their positions and to come to a mutual agreement. That is not how Christ mediated. This wasn't loving Christ trying to soothe and pacify angry God. No, God was in Christ. They were on the same page perfectly. I mean, John 3.16 reminds us that it was the love of God that started this whole process. It was the love of God in Christ. It was the will of God in Christ. It was the Father in and through the Son accomplishing the reconciliation of the world. They were together in this. They were one. And do we see what this indirectly points toward? God also indwells us and accomplishes through us the ministry of reconciliation. Not in the same way he did through Christ, but in a continued way. Because we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. In John 17, verses 20 to 23, Jesus prayed this to the Father. I mean, if there are any prayers we should pay attention to, it's the prayers of the Son to the Father, right? John 17, verse 20. He's, Jesus said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of his disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying for us. He is praying for all believers. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me. And I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. 
The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. The phrase, we're in this together, comes to mind in a whole new light. God was in Christ. Somehow, we are also in Christ. And Christ is in God. Let me be honest with you. I have very little idea how this all works. But I know it is awesome. It is life-changing. It is eternally life-changing. Let's look at number six. Here we see a new verdict. This is so incredible. The verse says, not counting their trespasses against them. The Greek word for counting or imputing, as some versions say, is the word logizomahi. And it refers to taking inventory. Let that sink in for a minute. Hear this. God destroyed the inventory records of our sins. We who were once fully guilty have been declared through Christ fully innocent because no one, not even God, can find the inventory records. They don't exist. Don't you love how God gave insight to the psalmist in Psalm 103, verses 10 to 12? He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. That's the inventory it's speaking of there and the adding up of the numbers. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If that isn't freedom from guilt, I don't know what is. Our sins are no longer held against us, the verse says. They no longer bring judgment. They no longer bring condemnation. How is this? Because Jesus Christ, our means, our mediator, took the judgment. He bore the condemnation. He paid the price once and for all for our sins. He settled the records. He reconciled the books with his own blood. No greater love. Now, a very important distinction is found in recognizing that God did not overlook sin. He is a just and a righteous God. He cannot overlook sin. By nature, he cannot do that. He didn't just toss out the inventory records. The verse specifically says, not counting their trespasses against them. Oh, God counted them all right. He counted them against his own son. His own son. If you have a son or a daughter, a family member, would you count the sins of the world against them? Christ took them. The well-known Isaiah 53 speaks directly of this truth. Verses 4 to 6, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And what's so stunning in this substitutionary atonement 
is that the son, the good shepherd, willingly laid his life down for the sheep. Listen to the beautiful words of John chapter 10, verse 15 to 18. Jesus, in referring to himself as the good shepherd, said, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Those are amazing words, aren't they? Such true, voluntary love. Yes, this phrase, not counting their trespasses against them, means something to believers who recognize that it's because of that not counting their trespasses against them that their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Their record of sin has this word stamped on it, justified. Because of that, we are spared the penalty of sin, which is the lake of fire. You can read about that in Revelation 20. And we've not only been spared the, the eternal lake of fire, eternal separation from God, we have, on the other hand, been granted a place in the palace of God forever. We are not only spared, we are blessed. We are not only forgiven, we are adopted. This is the new verdict. Our chains have fallen off, right? We've been set free. Do we treasure our new verdict? When we read the words, God was not counting their trespasses against them, do we in our hearts fall to the ground in worship and then jump for joy? If this short phrase would not, was not in the text, if this was not our spiritual reality, then none of these verses would exist. Christian friends, celebrate your salvation. And if you're here and you aren't a follower of Christ, I urge you to believe in Him today. Why not? These are the blessings of God's forgiveness and the hope of eternal life to all who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and follow Him. Before we look at the last two points, there's number seven and eight, I'd like us to pause for a moment, ask the ushers to come and to prepare to serve communion. We don't want to wait till the end of service to remember and thank God for what He did in and through Christ. This message is front and center in our minds right now that He did not count our trespasses against us. He counted them against His Son, and His Son voluntarily received it. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 to 26. For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a follower of Christ and you know your sins have been forgiven because your faith and your trust is in Christ alone, then I invite you to partake in this communion. This is a symbol. It is our reminder of our new covenant with Christ through Christ, in Christ. If you're not a Christian, meaning you aren't in covenant with God to follow Christ and to believe in Him, please feel free to just simply pass the plate. There, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. You understand that communion is Christ's command for believers to follow as a way of remembering their very personal covenant 
with him and to remember what he did for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand amazed at the foot of the cross, amazed at the love of God. The hymn writer reflected, how could you do that for me? Thank you, Lord, for not counting our sins against us, but for sending one, the only one who could do it, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for us, to satisfy the records, to reconcile the inventory. And at the end of the day, you see no sin. You see the righteousness of Christ. Lord, let this reality, let these truths not become so common in our mind that we lose their sense of value. Lord, help us to see afresh today how much we have been forgiven, how much we have been blessed, how much we have been promised, how secure we are in Christ, not because our works are good, but because Christ is good. We love you, Lord. And we take this bread and this cup in remembrance of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Talks don't play for another 50 minutes or so, so I'm going to squeeze my last two points in. Let's look quickly at our last two points, 2 Corinthians 5. It's because there is this new verdict that there are now, point number seven, new ministers. The verse says, committed to us. Earlier in the verse it said, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you studied your Bible, you know that in many ways it was entrusted to Israel and only the nation of Israel. They were the gatekeepers of the faith and particularly of the law, the law of God, the Mosaic law, etc. But when Christ came, the ministry went worldwide. Isn't that awesome? We're a part of it. The Gentiles got it. The Greeks got it. The slaves got it. Both men and women and children. All those who repented and believed in Christ, the risen Son of God as their Lord and Savior, were made ministers of the gospel. And this verse teaches us that we not only have new ministers, we have finally, number eight, a new message it says, God committed to us the word of reconciliation. In verse 18, we see the ministry of reconciliation. Here in verse 19, we have the word of reconciliation. These terms that Scripture uses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are so critical, so critical to understand and recognize. Think about this. There are many religions of the world that readily acknowledge the need for the ministry of reconciliation, the need to be made right with the creator of the universe, the need to find God, whoever that might be in their minds. But sadly, these various religions each have their own what? Word of reconciliation, their own message, their own truth, their own way, their own means. And any serious student of religion readily recognizes that they can't all be right. They all conflict on numerous non-negotiable points. And they certainly conflict with the Word of God, God's Word of Reconciliation that we call the Bible. If you want to prove this point of massive contradiction, just go out on the street and start asking people, who is Jesus Christ? What is sin? Where did we come from? I mean, you can picture the answers. What is justice? What is heaven? How do we talk to God? What is human's responsibility? Try asking this. What is a good person? 
you and I will get more differing answers than we can count to every single one of those questions. At the end of the day, we'll realize somebody's lying. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, somebody's lying because they cannot all be true. So many of these answers contradict the Bible on too many non-negotiable points. This is one more reason for us to give thanksgiving. Aren't you glad that God didn't leave it up to us to write the word of reconciliation? Or to leave it up to us to figure it out? No, He wrote it. He gave it. He did it. He entrusted it. Ours is to simply and faithfully minister the new message, which is the gospel, the good news of what God has done for everyone. Stepping back and looking at these eight points, if you're ever wondering what it means and looks like to be a Christian, there are eight angles right there, eight attributes of the Christian life and being a Christian and what this means. In one sense, eight points here is a lot to think about. So if we're not careful, we can get lost in the woods here. So, so what's, what's the main point of all this life-guiding doctrine and theology? What's the main point of these amazing spiritual truths and realities? What are they all pointing to? There are two very clear applications in the text. We don't have to dig for them. They're right here in the text. Number one, don't look at people the same way. Paul started verse 16 by saying, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, not even Christ. Oh, that you and I will increasingly take on a radically different way of viewing the people around us, both in the church and out of the church, both others and in ourselves. Specifically, we don't want to look at the outward, we look at the inward. Our focus isn't on the physical, it's on the spiritual. Our vision isn't on the temporal, it's on the eternal. We don't look at what we can see, we look at what we cannot see. And I admit, it takes spiritual work to see people this way. My family, my coworkers, my neighbors, that other driver in the roundabout, if I skip my daily time in God's Word, my vision is measurably and noticeably out of focus. Just ask my wife, she'll tell you. Yeah, he's walking into some walls today. Just give him some space. Without consistent prayer, in time and in the word of truth, my focus starts seeing people impatiently. It starts focusing on faults. It puffs up my pride. It starts putting more stock on today and less on eternity. I start worrying, I start controlling or I try to control. What a thought. Oh, how we need the glasses of the Word and the Spirit of God. We need our Sunday worship together. We need Christian fellowship to help straighten the glasses on our face. Paul said, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. There's our first challenge for this week and for the rest of our life. Application number two from the text. Give people the message the word of reconciliation. We're going to see this even further when we look at verse 20 and 21 next week about us being ambassadors for Christ. But today though, God's word is teaching us very clearly and very simply that when we look at people for who they really are, spiritually and eternally, giving them the message of healing and hope and forgiveness and eternal life is the most natural or the better would be the most supernatural and instinctive and required response from us. When we see their worth to God, when we see their need, when we ponder their eternal destiny, giving them the answer is common sense. It is spiritually instinctive. Let me give a quick analogy as we close. A few years back when I saw a car literally flip right in front of me on Highway 16, everything in me said, pull over and get that driver out of the car before it crushes them or catches on fire. Now, I didn't have to go to school to learn that. You wouldn't have to go to school to learn that. I didn't have to read a manual. That is common survival sense. So why are we so slow at times to reach out to those around us with the life-saving Word of God. 
surely a big part of it is because we don't look at them like Scripture tells us to. Perspective is everything. Or we don't look often enough or clearly enough, diligently enough, intentionally enough. We're so focused on the physical and the temporal and our own lives, our own lane on the freeway, that we often don't see the spiritual car flipped over in the, name, in the lane next to us. The possibility of death by fire doesn't cross our minds because we forgot to diligently look at life spiritually and eternally. When we see people differently, like Scripture is talking about here, it changes everything, especially our desire to minister the life-saving, freedom-giving word of reconciliation. And that includes giving it to both the lost and the found, both the unbeliever and the believer. We all need the word. Have you and I shared a verse of Scripture with at least one other person this past week? Just a verse to lift their hearts and give them some spiritual guidance. Have we sat and prayed with at least one other person? These are just some of the most basic and most life-saving behaviors of good spiritual vision and ministry. By the grace of God, may we do what we know we have been called to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this message of salvation you have not only given to us, you have worked it through us. You have performed the ministry of reconciliation in us. You have saved us. You have, give, you have freed us from the guilt and the shame of sin. You have given us hope for eternal life, a solid and assured hope. And for that, we rejoice. But Lord, let the joy not stop there. Help us to see people as Christ saw them. When he looked at the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Of all people, the people of God should be the most compassionate in the world. Lord, burden our hearts more. Continue to equip us as we know you were doing. Prepare us as we know you promised to do, to minister the word of reconciliation, the wonderful good news of eternal life. We worship you today. We love you. We praise you because you are God. And all God's people said, amen.